Welcome to the Hunter Pack Country Podcast. This is episode Monday Minute 162. And normally on Monday Minute episodes, it is Steve and myself answering your listener questions. But we're just on the way back from the sheep show. So we've had a crazy week this past week. Uh, it was an awesome time in Reno for the sheep show. And especially thank you to everyone that stopped by the booth and came to say hello and check out the Exo Mountain Gear. Today, instead of the Monday Minute episode, I have a conversation that I recorded with Chris Way. Chris first joined us back in episode 275, and that episode was titled, Your True Accuracy and Shooting Standards. And we talked about rifle shooting and how our true accuracy isn't what we can do on the bench. And we talked about how positional shooting is so important for hunters and how to assess that. Chris has a drill called the craft drill, which we talked about way back in episode 275. And it's something that thousands of shooters have completed since that time. I wanted to do kind of an unscripted conversation with Chris just to personally catch up, talk about the craft drill and get into many other topics related to shooting rifles and how that applies to hunting in the real world. So this is definitely an unscripted conversation. I always love talking with Chris and learn a lot from him, and I know that you will as well. If you want to hear more about the craft drill or the background behind it, be sure to check out that previous episode. It's, again, episode 275. I'll leave a link in the episode description for that, and also we'll leave a link to Chris's website and much more. So be sure to check out those links as you hear this conversation if there's anything you're interested in. But right now, let's dive into this unscripted conversation with Chris. It's been a while since you were on our show. And I think at the time we recorded the kind of the craft drill was fairly new anyway. I'm curious what what you've learned since then. So not only in speaking with people, but I think as people upload their targets to the site, I think and I'm not sure to what extent you have capabilities of like extrapolating data and averages and things like that out of it. But um, it's just a high level. Like, what do you feel you've learned or maybe observed, I guess, from the rifle and the craft drill and the thousands of targets that have been completed? Oh man, that's a, that's a big question. (laughs) I mean, mean, to be totally honest and, and say something that's like a little bit crazy like from the time that I started rifle craft till now, it's almost changed my life <laughs> and it's changed the trajectory of all my interests in shooting because of the data, because I'm now so fascinated with the influence that people have on their rifle systems. Right, period. Pull to on the point that. Like, How has your interest in shooting changed because, because of this? Well, I got involved with shooting because, uh, you know, I was an athlete, uh, you know, my, I had a lot of friends that shot and we wanted to, you know, test out competitive rifle shooting. <clears throat> and so I decided to explore competitive rifle shooting and being competitive, I wanted to get good. And so I tried a number of styles and set goals to get trophies in field shooting, sniper matches, precision rifle matches, and kind of developed rifle craft as I went towards and, and ultimately accomplished those goals. But 
because of rifle craft, I started to think about shooting differently. And when I started to collect data from other people and ask questions, you know, why isn't everybody getting trophies? Why, why aren't, why aren't shooting standards higher? It, it comes back to looking at the greater population. And now, even though I, I enjoy seeing different styles of competition, thinking about and participating and hunting um, to, to a certain extent, seeing what people are doing with pretty much exclusively kind of long range or precision rifle systems. I don't, I don't care so much about my performance as understanding kind of the universal trends. So in, in that sense, I went from, you know, having kind of competition goals to now trying to figure out the fastest and easiest ways to get people able to accomplish their goals, you know, and whatever their criteria is or create checks and balances of, are you ready to go after, you know, whatever it is that you're going to do with it. Um, yeah. So, and, and that, that came entirely from, from rifle craft and the numbers that people submit and then essentially continuing to do experiments with rifles and performance through other people and chart and monitor their progress. So what kind of data can you pull? Like, what can you observe? What can you quantify or summarize from people uploading targets? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. So really the, the craft trail, even though it's not necessarily standardized because, you know, I just say, look, what I'm concerned about are fundamentals and how people apply fundamentals consistently in at different heights. And that tells me something about the shooter. And so the, the, the original drill was 100 yards because here most ranges have 100-yard berm. People generally zero their rifles at 100 yards. There's a lot of information that you gather at 100 yards. So at 100 yards, uh, you do build and break, which means you, you build a position and take one shot, and then you take your gear back into your hand or on your pack. You break down the position that you shot from, and then you rebuild the position and you take a shot either from that same position or height or a different height. And I wanted people to shoot from four different heights and you build the position from scratch each time you take the shot. And it gives you kind of a snapshot of the overall fundamental consistency and repeatability of a shooter. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So like, well, you tell me, you, you know, you hunt a lot more than I do. You can probably think of the last, you know, four or five tags that you filled. Mm -hmm. um, describe the positions that you had to build to take those shots. Yeah. So the the latest I went on um, a mountain goat hunt in southeast Alaska, and uh, you know, goat country is known for being steep, rugged, etc., and was basically in on a steep slope of mostly boulders, some smaller kind of rocky shaly stuff, but mostly bigger conglomerates of rock. Um, and with, with how vertical it was tried to go prone, if you will, but essentially feet were down the mountain, head was up the mountain, 
laying over a rock and then having to shoot, you know, at what I would call 45 degrees to what typical prone is, right? Meaning my gun was coming off of my shoulder at a 45 degree angle uh, just because mm-hmm. the way the terrain was. Um, it was steep enough that uh, my buddy who was with me was trying to stack rocks under my feet to keep me from sliding. It, essentially, that position wasn't going to work, but I tried to make it work. Um, there was it was not a a rushed shot. The goat was unaware of our presence. Um, that was kind of the first area I was trying to maneuver without being seen, and that was at first the best opportunity to try and get into a position that I then determined. Even though it was only a 200 yard shot, I didn't have a broadside look. I had to, I had to make a very precise shot with the way that this animal was presented. Um, and that position just wasn't going to be stable enough. So kind of backed out of that, came back around and essentially ended up roughly seated, if you can call it that, but kind of between the depression of two different rocks at a very awkward, again, <laughs> not normal position. Um, mm-hmm. gun was supported by the, kind of the rock in front of me. Again, not a perfect, couldn't get square to the rifle, couldn't get square to recoil, not in a natural point of aim situation. That was an extreme example, but a recent one. Honestly, a lot, I can think through the, the three to four prior to that. And most of those were shot either from a, a seated or kneeling position with, front support and at times when I could rear support and these were backpack hunts. So I wasn't carrying dedicated shooting support per se. Um, There's these things called wiser precision quick sticks that basically take your trekking poles, connect them together and you can form like a V or a yoke of trekking poles. That's typically my front support. And then when I can, I'll get my pack, you know, our packs obviously have a, an integrated frame I'll get that under me and use that as rear support, whether seated or kneeling. Um, and so that's been a, a very common position, especially in the last kind of couple of years and a bunch of tags filled was that kneeling or seated with essentially trekking poles as my front support. And when I can, my pack is rear support. Gotcha. That, I mean, that, that that's perfect because check it out. Like you went from prone. So you got like a low, a low height and then, you talked about seated and then you talked about um, kneeling, right? And you've got to, if, if you break down like what was the height of the action or the barrel, you're talking about different heights. And I think people are surprised that as you have to get your body into a position behind the rifle, your fundamentals and your natural point of aim change as that height off the ground changes and you can see that very quickly by by shooting a craft drill so you grab the equipment that you're going to use and you build a supported position kind of replicating the shots that you may take in the field and people very quickly come to realize that the largest source of error in their shooting life is coming from them right it's coming from them and the relationship that they have with their rifle and their equipment. And so 
you know, when you go on the internet, it's not unusual to see people posting really incredible three shot groups and those three shot groups, you know, some of them are a quarter of an inch. Talk about their load and all the time that they placed on their load. And, um, and that's awesome, right? That, that shows how far equipment has come, how far loading and understanding has come. But then you take those same people with that same load across tens of thousands of targets submitted. And the people that submit the targets on the website, they're not, you know, they're, they're not just random people. Like they, they care enough to go shoot, shoot paper, and then enter. So, so I, would, I would have to make the assumption that the people that, that are performing these drills are above average just because they went out of their way to go test and measure and record this stuff. Right? And I, I could be wrong. I would, I would say, I think that's fair. I would, if you take the people completing the craft drill and compare it to anyone hunting with a rifle, because a lot of the people completing the craft drill may not hunt at all. They could be competitive shooters, but from a familiarity and skills perspective behind a gun, it's got to be in the top single digits easily percentage wise of anyone who hunts with a rifle as a whole. That's not to say the other 90% even need to do the craft drill, right? Like I'm throwing out Mm -hmm. any hunter and there's plenty of hunters that, you know, I grew up hunting with a rifle in Missouri and a 60 yard shot could be long, right? Like you could be hunting in, in the woods and essentially a bow range distances all the time. You just happen to have a rifle in your hands, but yeah, I would getting to your point. Like if you start to say, Hey, here's what we see as an average in craft drills, that's the top single digit percent of what i would say quote unquote hunters would be yeah i mean right in hunters there's 30 million hunters in the u.s and in in competitive shooters with a with a with a bolt gun you know you're 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 talking about a couple couple thousand maybe max right but but we have a lot of data and i was very surprised that you know despite all the amazing equipment that everybody has uh, the average at first, that first year, the average group size was four MOA, meaning from the point of aim, the widest shot, you know, was two inches from center. So at a hundred yards, you know, the average shooter uh, was producing, you know, from, from an unknown position, you know, shots within a four inch the average, right? So, so there were certainly ones that were bigger, right? Mm-hmm. So this is this is just average, and and so that that really made me start to wonder and, and just get really obsessed with the idea that you know we have these great systems, and yet at a hundred yards, people are and it, it wasn't just one shot out of twelve. You know the the groups are typically um, you you can almost you can almost look at some of these targets and say. Here's the three from one position. Here's the three from another. But they, they wandered from the point of aim. And so the question is, you know, what, what why is that happening? And, and of course, there's, there's a million answers. But, but that, that was and still is, you know, the, the ultimate question that I'm kind of thinking about every day is, is how do I help people bring that four inches to three inches? And then that three inches to two inches. And then if, even if they can't, how do we say, well, what is your goal? And how do we extrapolate this data to determine whether you need more training or whether it's good enough 
for you to accomplish what you're going after, right? Because a, a bench press shooter, they're going after putting bullet hole within a bullet hole, right? They're trying to loophole a one hole, <laughs> you know? So you got like mm-hmm. a, you know, six, five Creedmoor, you got this 0.264 inch hole and they want it to say that big putting bullet through bullet through bullet through bullets. And, but yet your, your, your goat hunt, you don't, you don't need to do that, right? You need to hit, you know, whatever I, I've never hunted a mountain goat, but, but I'll take a wild guess that you've got to hit, you know, a 10 inch zone to make sure that you take the animal down mm-hmm. or something like that. Well, 10 inches is a lot different than, you know, a quarter of an inch, <laughs> but yeah. that, that, that extrapolates out to distance and stress and environmentals. And so we, I always start with the baseline of let's look at your hundred yard data and figure out what that means because, you know, your groups don't get better with distance. And what I mean is, you know, if you shoot four inches at a hundred yards, you're going to shoot eight inches at 200 yards at best. And as you get out from that and you start adding in wind and stress and environmentals, you need to start adding more width to, yeah. to that group to account what your capabilities are. But it all, it all comes back to that original baseline of, you know, where are you at a hundred mental, a hundred yards you know, by removing stress, by removing wind and everything so that we can start working on that. Because at least in my experience, the biggest source of error starts with the shooter. And most people say, well, it's wind. You know, you take a shot. If, if, if I go to a competition and I interview shooters and I say, man, you know, you were just shooting at a two MOA target at 200 yards. Uh, but you missed a couple, what happened? You know, 99% of them are going to say, oh man, the wind, the wind got me. Right. And that could be, that could be the truth, but I would most of the time bet against it. Right. If if you're shooting at a two MOA target and the average shooter shoots four MOA positionally, unless they've worked at it, uh, odds are they missed it because of, their error not the wind and and then as as people get better that that ratio shifts but the largest ratio of error that i see is in the shooter themselves um and because you know if i go to a, a field match which probably has the biggest amount of wind error uncertainty because you have to make your own wind calls you have a certain amount of time to do it they're they're reading reading the wind to like three or four miles an hour well three or four miles an hour for most of the calibers and the distances that we're shooting, that that variation, it, it adds about one MOA. I'm speaking in generalities, but if, if you take, mm-hmm. if you, you know, in general, if I was going to just say, well, in, you know, let's just make up a random scenario. If somebody's been out there and they understand how to make a good wind call, chances are it's, you know, whatever it is, that variation is going to add an inch to their group. Well, adding one inch to their group when they're shooting four inches, you know, that that's 25% you know, or, or when you put it all together, that's 20% of the group size variance, but the other 80%, well, let, let's say the other 20% is their system. So they got 20% system, 20% wind. They've got 60% of error is their own. And so we, what I've really 
am fascinated with is, well, how do we take that 60% error and bring it down? Because that's ultimately going to determine where you're going to feel comfortable taking that ethical shot from. You know, if I say, well, you shoot four inches, we, you know, you're, you're probably going to, you're probably going to tap out at 230 yards before statistically, you know, there's a good chance that you're going to start having your shots go outside of that zone, you know, on a 10 inch, 10 inch goat. But if I can bring your four inches to three inches, you know, we've almost added a hundred yards to your ability to take an ethical shot you're not going to win an F-class competition or a bench rest competition, but you're going to accomplish your particular goal. And, and so how do, how do you bring that down? And, and that's, that's kind of my obsession. Love it. Let's get to the, some more of that, but I want to ask this as well. And maybe, maybe you haven't thought of this. I don't know. It's a recent thought to me. Hornady had a podcast recently titled something effective your groups are too small and they were talking about you know sample size and data and extrapolated that into a a bunch of different ways and people should and can and should go listen to that i think and there's a lot to process there but one of the things that came out of that for me is talking about like you know sample size in terms of zero and what is your rifles zero and are you zeroed and a lot of hunters I would say typically will zero the rifle with a few rounds. What, and a lot of them tend to do that either from the bench or maybe from prone, mm-hmm. but specifically if you were to shoot a craft drill, you have, you have the introduction of all these positional, pos- all these positional shots and you will find as as you mentioned that typically you're going to have the center of those impacts be different than your point of aim i guess my question is at the end of the day not only you're getting a higher sample size with a craft drill but you're also introducing your personal tendencies from positions and i feel like using a craft drill even to set your zero is actually incredibly beneficial to hunters both because of an increased sample size as well as a more realistic representation of what you're prone to do from positions not from the bench does that make sense for sure yeah it does it does now there's a couple caveats to that though i I think that if somebody thinks you know uh, oh man i shoot an inch left when i'm kneeling so i'm going to change my zero or i'm going to hold left or you know i'm going to i'm going to try to deliberately accommodate for that I think that's probably not a good way to go about it because what happens if you do it right? Right. So now, so, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you're going to commit to training, you want to, you want to set a zero and you want to set an expectation of um, bringing all those positions to the same point of aim, but knowing your tendencies, you kind of know how to think about where the shots go for sure. Um, I don't, I don't want to do a trick. You know, if, if I'm shooting standing, and, and a lot of shooters shoot high when they're shooting standing off a tripod or standing off of uh, an object, uh, it's before you kind of correct them and train them. A lot of a lot of times, you know, their high shot, their their standing shots are high, but they could be low. But but most of the time, they're going to be higher because they shoot prone uh, primarily. And if you if you tell that shooter, okay, you usually shoot high when you're standing. 
and they aim low and they miss, uh, they, they don't really know why they missed, right? And and so I, I caution people from making big changes like that. But I but I do think it's probably a good idea to start, you know, keeping track of it and tracking your tendencies. And I do set my zero based on four shots and I do one from four positions. You know, I'll do prone. You know, uh, I tend not to shoot seated a whole lot. So I do like a low kneeling, a high kneeling and a standing. And I'll set my zero to that because, you know, for me, because I work on it a lot, there's not a huge amount of variance between my positions. Um, And I think that's, you know, really a really smart thing to do. And at least it's getting you back because if, if, if you knew the position that you were going to shoot from, ultimately, you would just set it from that position. But more and more encounters that you're going to have with a rifle, you can't anticipate the position in, in advance. If you could anticipate the position in advance, you would train exclusively in that position, right? You would set it, you would set your zero to that position. I mean, that, that would be the smart thing to do. But in an application where you can't anticipate what's coming, you kind of want to know across the board what your overall performance is based on. So, you know, I'm, it, let's say, you know, let's say I can shoot one MOA prone, but overall I shoot three MOA. I, I encourage people to think not as themselves as a one MOA shooter, but a three MOA shooter. And that kind of hurts egos a little bit. But I think if you base it off of your widest parameters, you know, you've got a lot of opportunity for growth and success. And if you base it on your best parameters, you're going to be let down a lot. You're going to be scratching your head and trying to find other things to blame. And, and, and that's just a mindset. But my mindset is, look, if, if you shoot a craft drill and you shoot three inches, you're a three-inch shooter. And now you've got options to go with. But if you think in terms of three inches, once you've decided that you can hit something, you probably will, right? If I have a nine-inch target, let's say I'm going to shoot a a white-tailed deer and, and, and I think, wow, you know, the vitals on that is nine inches and I'm a three-inch shooter, 250 yards and in, I know I'm going to get it, right? That That's empowering. That There's nothing to say but positives about that because if I find that deer, if that deer is at 350 yards, I have a choice to make. Right. And the choice that I'm probably going to make is how can I get a hundred yards closer? Because I want to put myself in a position of, I can do this, you know, 99.7% of the time, you know, I'm going to make this shot, not, well, it's at 500 yards. So, you know, I've got a 50, 50 chance that that's not, that's not how I want to think about things. Right. So I want to think about it in terms of success. And in, in reality, most of our goals aren't that far off, right? I mean, I don't have a goal of winning a bench rest competition. And I'm pretty far off of being able to put a bullet through a bullet hole. But within the things that I like to do, I don't have to be better than a one-inch shooter or a one-and-a-half-inch shooter. And for most of us, none of us have to, but we have to define the goal and then work backwards. And I think working backwards from that broadest set is better. So yes, I, th- I think that the statistical 
approach, you know, is pretty good. It's easy to go down a rabbit hole and say, well, I got to do 50 shots. Well, you definitely don't have to do 50 shots. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely don't have to do a lot of the things that people want to justify statistically, but you do have better odds at accomplishing your goal and being successful at it if you have a pretty good data set to back it up with. But if you put your rifle in a lead sled and you zero it at 100 yards or 200 yards and you set your zero to that on a paper plate on a lead sled, and then you take that rifle from the lead sled and you try to, like you did, balance your rifle on a rock, knead it, kneeling while your buddy's putting rocks under your foot, there's no way to know if you're going to be able to make that shot, right? Because you, the shooter is the source of most of the error and you have no metric to measure how much error you're inputting on your rifle. So you're basically going out there taking a gamble um, with a rifle that can do its part, but you know, all of our rifles can do their part. So, so this, this goes in and says, you know, how much error are you providing the system? Because we're, you know, we always provide error to the system. And, and then what do I need to do to ensure that I can take the shot that I want to do? That, it, you know, that, that, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Super cool. So that probably is a long winded, good context for some of what I want to ask you about, which is part of the reason I sent you a text. I was like, Hey man, let's hop on a podcast. I, I don't know how I saw this, became aware of it. It was recent. I didn't honestly want to research it because I want to hear about it from you, which is what we're doing here today. This is like essentially me personally asking you with you know thousands of people listening in. I saw you're doing a rifle craft mountain hunter assessment and then also an unconventional skill assessment. And obviously the, the whole mountain hunter assessment is like first was like, oh, that sounds cool. What's that? So uh I'll just leave that with you. Like, that sounds cool. What's that? <laughs> so, so I have a, I have a, a long, you know, many, many decades history of, of doing stuff in the mountains. And so taking shooting into the mountains is a natural, natural step for me. And, and people out West, you know, often take rifles to the mountains to hunt. And so, uh, so we, uh, color, the state of Colorado has a, uh, uh, state run, shooting facility called cameo shooting facility out of it's by grand junction. And, um, it's pretty awesome. You know, big rocks, big cliffs in the background. So it's got high angle. It's got good distance. It's got mountain conditions for wind, you know, and, and, and as you know, in the mountains, you, you have those wind and weather conditions change from the morning to the afternoon to the evening. And so getting familiar with how, weather and wind moves through terrain is, is, is pretty important. Um, and then, uh, I've developed this assessment and there's plenty of people that train people to shoot rifles. And, and I didn't want to get involved with, you know, rifle shooting one-on-one and teaching people fundamentals, but, but I am fascinated with and do love the idea and, and have, you know, continued to expand on the, the notion of uh, I want to get measurements from shooters. Just like when you go to the, the doctor, you know, let's say you go get a physical and they take your blood 
and they measure your weight and they look at your body fat and they talk about sleep and they, you know, do all this stuff. And then they get the results back from your blood work. And then they say, look, we have all this data and this data suggests various things. I wanted to, I wanted to design a program based on rifle craft data and the measurements that I've been taking and extrapolate on that and basically do a physical on people shooting. And so we shoot from multiple positions. We shoot at, at different distances in order to get somebody's wind reading ability together. We, we look at their equipment, what they plan on using, how they understand their position building, their decision-making on whether it's a shot that they can make and, and what they may or may not be able to do to make the hit probability higher. And um, I spend a couple days. So, so I call that the un unconventional skill assessment. And so we're layering together this mountain course with the unconventional skill assessment to say, rather than say, if you, you know, you do this, you know, be my clone. That That's not what I want to do. Right. What I want to do is we go there and, I just measure, I just take numbers off of your shot. So you come and you bring a bunch of ammo, you bring your rifle, you bring all your gear. And I put you in positions where, you know, I'm going to time you, I'm going to ask you questions and we're going to look at whether you hit the target. And it, even if you hit the target, where you hit the target or where you missed it and break it down to a chart that says, you know, here's your strengths and weaknesses and here's your biggest areas for growth. And, um, and this would just be in the mountain, mountain setting. And then, so after a day of doing that, I, I really don't do a whole lot of instruction. I pretty much just, you know, kind of laugh and hang, hang out and have fun, do our best to have a good time, but get down as much data as I can, because on my end, you know, it, it's important to have that statistical sample size where, you know, I can say with confidence, you can read the wind to about four miles an hour. You can read the wind to six miles an hour. You can read because, because that's going to have a huge effect on where your biggest margin of error is coming from. And for some shooters, they really are good. And the wind is the parameter that they need to work on. But then we say, look, to bring that down, let's focus in on very specific elements unique to you on how to increase your hit probability. And, and if it's wind for you, then we, then we spend the next day developing kind of a wind training program and looking for indicators and ways for you to wrap your head around growing your wind reading skills. And um, that, you know, that that's kind of a, kind of a long synopsis of what, what those courses are. So, so rather than just saying, okay, you know, introduction, you're going to do things my way. Okay. Everybody do drill a, everybody do drill B and you should be better. You know, I don't, I don't think that works for a lot of shooters, especially shooters with a lot of experience. The problem is most people with experience, including myself, you, you kind of get stuck in a routine and it's hard to see around, you know, the things that you do to fill it because, um, you know, there's kind of that generic saying of, um, you know, if you keep doing the things that you're doing, you're going to keep getting the results that you're getting. And most of us want results that we're not getting. And in order to get the results that we're not getting, we're going to have to start doing things that we're not doing, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. 
so this is trying to pinpoint, okay, you know, for you, these are the, these are the reasons that you miss the most. Let's hone in on those reasons that you're missing the most and try to improve those. Because if we can, you're going to see a measurable increase in your hip percentage. And that, that's been working. We, we run them uh, in 2022 at a, at a ranch in, in Fort Morgan, Colorado. Frank Galley and I, we've outfitted a ranch basically that has targets at different angles, different distances. And we run shooters through two days of metrics. And then they go home and I send them a document with a training plan. So they don't get a huge amount of instruction in person. What they get in person is measured specifically. And then those numbers are broken down and turned into a training plan. And that training plan over the next you know, two months or three months is designed to eliminate their weaknesses or bring their weaknesses up. And right now it's, it's like 96% of people that have come through that assessment after the three months have grown more than 20% in their ability to hit targets, you know, from, from that baseline. So, and it's, and it's often not what they come thinking it's going to be. You know, it's not, they need a better load. It's not, they need a better scope. It's not, they need a better rifle, right? It's, it's, it's often not, um, wind reading, right? It, it, you know, and that, that, that's kind of the generic thing that everybody wants is I need to get better at wind so I can hit more targets. Yeah. If you put it, if you, if you put numbers into a weapon employment zone calculator, you know, wind makes a big difference. But only only once your shooting gets under control and you can shoot, you know, better than three or four inches. What are the common examples then? It's not wind, it's it's not that like it's positional consistency. You know, you, you can if you lay down prone and you can shoot a half inch group, but now you get off your belly and your groups open up to three inches, um, you know, it's it's how do you carry the fundamentals that you're applying in prone to different heights of the rifle? Assuming they're not going to only exclusively shoot prone. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I don't know many shooters who in the real world, you know, outside of a flat range, prone's not a super common shooting position. And if it is, you know, it's, it's awkward prone, but, but at least, you know, okay. So that takes away some of the uncertainty of training towards a goal. But, but if, if, if we were just taking a generic shooter and saying, you know, I just want to be better at shooting and I might have to shoot standing and I might have to shoot kneeling, you know, supported, I'm, I'm talking about supported, not offhand shooting. Um, uh, a lot of those positions aren't as stable as you would think they were. Uh, and, and um, you know, those half inch groups open up from your point of aim and bringing those into being more consistent. And it teaches you about your fundamentals and in your relationship with your rifle and how to apply those more evenly so that, you know, if you come around a boulder or a tree or a band or break the crest of a, you know, a, a, a mountain and you see that mountain goat down there and you say, crap, you know, that's down. You know, the only way for me to get a good shot is to set up my tripod standing and shoot downhill. Um, you you know that when you set up that tripod standing and you shoot downhill, you won't be two m away off of your point of aim, right? 
Um, and sometimes that's, you know, if, if time is a factor and a lot of times it is, but sometimes it isn't right. You, you mentioned that you got to fiddle with your position cause it didn't know you were there. That's mm-hmm. awesome. But in the event that you were like, shoot, you know, I don't think we have a lot of time. Um, you would have the confidence to say, I can take this kneeling shot and, and take it. Or you would instantly be able to, to use, you know, the, the reasoning skills that you get through this to say, all right, it's 300 yards. Um, you know, we either need to get 50 yards closer or I need to, I need to build a prone position because I can do it from prone. And, 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 and I think that's important because under stress, a lot of us don't want to think anymore. You're like, fuck it. I'm just going to shoot. And, and that's a cycle that, that has to be broken through rational decision-making. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, to, to me anyway. So yeah, that, that's the, the mountain assessment. There, there's one in March and one in, um, in May. March is in conjunction with CR2 uh, shooting and Chris Roberts and Chris Rance are army, uh, former army sniper cadre uh, at the, the army sniper school in, in uh, Georgia. And they now have a training uh, company. We're doing that together with them. Uh, we, we do that class combined once a year. And then in May, it's just Frank Galley and I doing the mountain hunter assessment, which is, um, you know, kind of what I just described. And then monthly, the unconventional skill assessment. And then we're, we're I, it, it's not out yet, but I, I'm also doing a, a virtual like a, or a remote 12-week training program that has live fire drills for one or two days a week and then dry fire drills for as many days a week as you can. And then you, you report back filling out these forms and then sending me pictures of your targets uh, while we're building the data entry component to the website where um, you know, I can do kind of like a workout training plan that's designed to um kind of cover those bases and it it's kind of like a create your own adventure thing so based on the numbers that you get back you'll get um kind of personalized appropriate drills for where you're at so so it it requires honest feedback Uh, you know if somebody sends back perfect one whole groups um you know they're going to get drills that are meant for perfect one whole group shooter um, and then, you know, so, so, so it kind of scales, there's different tracks that, that are designed to try to help you where your weakest area is. So it does require feedback, but, um, but, but that, that's something that I'm also uh, really excited about because then people don't have to spend the money for travel. And, and if you listen to my podcast, one of my big gripes about competitions and training and all that stuff is, you know, the, the entry fee for a competition might be $200, $300. But the total cost of going to a competition for me is usually around $2,000 because of airfare, rental car, hotel, food, so on and so forth. And, and that's the case for coming to a class. If the, if the unconventional skill assessment costs somebody $1,000, but it costs them another $1,500 to fly here, buy ammo, get a hotel, rent a car, you know, eat, so on and so forth, then you know, how do, how do we get around all those extra expenses that you, that you're asking somebody to, to 
to kind of dish out. And so that, that's where the virtual program, uh, you know, sometimes you have to do that. Like if somebody's a really high end shooter, or they have really high end goals or if somebody's paying, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to Tajikistan, you know, maybe, maybe it's worth spending a thousand dollars to come out here and, and get a real detailed assessment of where they're at. But some people just want to get better. You know, I, I think to a certain extent we can do that virtually, but it requires some one-on-one interaction. It requires specific drills and that honest back and forth between us and saying, all right, you know, what you do is great, but what you do is getting you what you're getting now. So, you know, you, you're going to have to trust me, but by trusting me, we'll be able to show that you're going to grow in a bigger, bigger context. And, and, and I, I just like that idea because um, I want to see people grow. And I also want to understand what factors contribute to that growth. Love it. What um, I was going to ask about dry fire as it relates to, to positional and like, even, you know, someone comes to this assessment and they go home with, Hey, here are these things that, you know, here's your weaknesses. Here's these things to work on. Um, dry fire being a part of that. Like I, I wrote an article on dry fire just from my own personal experience of what I found helpful and position is, is certainly part of that. But at the same time, it's the thing with dry fire is you're limited, obviously, in seeing what is actually happening downrange, meaning you have to pair dry fire with, I think, honestly, something like the craft drill is great, right? Like if I start shooting the craft drill and I'm a form away shooter, and yes, I'll continue to shoot some live fire when I can, but I'm also going to practice dry fire, whether that's positional, trigger control, et cetera, that, that is certainly going to help, but you're not verifying, quote unquote, the improvement until you see that, for example, your craft drill score gets better, right? Um, so just kind of curious, like how, from your perspective of creating training and kind of giving some guidance, instruction, prescription, if you will, like what specifically, how do you use dry fire and maybe some of what are the shortcomings of dry fire practice for, for like what you're prescribing? Okay. So that those are, those are great questions and points. What, one thing I want to point out though, um, and, and, you know, people may or may not already know this and then i'm just repeating myself the craft drill isn't a training it's not a training drill right it's just a snapshot of your current fundamental you know repeatable fundamental abilities so then that, that gets confused online a lot like well it's it's not a it's a drill but if you do that drill over and over and over again you, you'll probably get better right but it's not necessarily a training plan in itself. It's just a current snapshot of where you're fundamental. So if you're training and you do a craft drill once a week or every other week or every three weeks, it should get better if your training plan is to shoot better craft drills you know, or to shoot better fundamentally, right? But, but in and of itself, it's just a, you know, where are your strengths and weaknesses at and what's your overall capability. Now, the training plan... Um, it's designed around, you know, the the theory and the practice of the minimum effective dose, right? So in, in athletics and performance, there's this minimum effective dose. Like, you know, some sometimes people are like, well, I'm going to 
start exercising. So I'm going to go out and I'm just going to freaking crush everything. And that, that's not necessarily the smartest or best or most efficient way to get better. And we've come to understand that with performance training, you, you only really need to do the amount of stimulus that produces a positive result. And more isn't always better. And that, that's, that's emotionally very hard for a lot of people to grapple with. Well, you know, if I did this training plan and I have measurable improvement, if I double it, maybe I'll double my improvement. And, and most of the time, uh, that ends in ca- catastrophic results, right? Like not only do you not get better, but you get worse and sick and, you know, all sorts of other injured and, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't work like that. So one to two days I go out and I say, okay, here, here are these drills that I want you to shoot on paper. And they're, it's not training. It's applying what you're thinking about and how you're doing it in dry fire so that we could scale those benefits. So, so right now the first week for this beta class is actually this next week coming up. So their, their, their first week of live fire drills is, is 32 shots, right? They're going to take 32 measured shots. And then they have dry fire program that has four dry fire exercises that they do as many days as they can, but, but they're going to write down specific parts of that dry fire. And it's, and it's not what I originally thought dry fire was, you know, build a position, wreck the bolt, shoot, wreck the bolt, shoot, wreck the bolt, shoot, you know, and doing, you know, high reps or, or lots of repetitions of just, you know, running the bolt and pulling the trigger. It, it's more, it's, it's much more of a mental exercise and a mental process of the whole thing that you're doing rather than one particular element. I mean, I, you're right. You need recoil and you need to see the effects of your consistency on paper. And then you adjust it, see that there's a change, and then you practice that. But practicing that, you know, once you identify it, you can do a lot of those elements. Um, you can do a lot of those elements without live firing. And I think that, that, um, you know, some things like, okay, so, so you mentioned, um, what, what was the product that connects your trekking poles? Uh, they're called the quick sticks. They're from wiser precision. So it's like a, it interlocks your trekking poles together. Uh, it's like a male female kind of hub and your two poles lock together and then you can deploy them at different angles um, to create, you know, kind of a V. So similar to what, you know, you can do it your own with like the the handles, right? With um, the sling part of the trekking poles and tie them together. I've seen guys create a yoke with string, et cetera. This is like a way of creating that, but with more stability essentially. And it's kind of quote unquote built in. Okay. So, so check it out. I'm just going to make up a random, a random thing for you to try. And, and I guess because your listeners are listening, so uh, I'm going to, I'm, because I don't know what, what you call it, um, I'm going to call it a patrol, a, a, your patrol setup, right? You're, you're backcountry hunting, but you don't, you, everything's not on your back, right? You've stripped down to what you're, what you're taking out to hunt. So you get, get in your patrol or your, whatever your carry hunting setup is, whether that's slung on your back or in your arm and you got your sticks and your trekking poles and all that shit, right? Mm-hmm. Now I want you to just, you know, and then one of your hands, your hands are free, right? Other than the fact that you've got these trekking poles, Okay. So this is what you're going to do. You're going to grab your phone. You're going to hit the stopwatch. You're going to hit start. You're going to pull a tennis ball. You've got to do this somewhere that you could do this safe and not get arrested. You're going to grab a tennis ball or a, ball, a lacrosse ball, some kind of ball, right? 
you're going to throw it as far as you can. And then you're going to set up your shooting position and you're going to set your parallax, get a good sight picture on that tennis ball as far as you threw it. Right. And you're going to measure the amount of wobble that you have and where the wobble is on your point of aim. Right. You're going to, you're going to get that wobble. You're going to measure it. You're going to try to center the wobble so that it's going right and left and right and left. And then you're going to practice. Then what you're going to do is before the, before you stop the time, you've noted your wobble, you've centered it up. And now you're going to try to take a clean shot without anticipating pulling the trigger. When the wobble is center, you just want to get that wobble so that it's within the tennis ball and that you break that clean shot with no anticipation. Right. Once you've done that, you hit stop on your stopwatch and you say, okay, that took me you know, however long it took me. And you write it down and you say, okay, my wobble was you know, whatever it was, um, you know, three MOA, you know, or one mil or what, you know, whatever your wobble was left and right. Was it centered on that tennis ball? Did you flinch? Did you try to time your shot so that you pulled the trigger when the reticle was in the center of the ball? That's a negative right? We don't want to do that. People want to do that, but what you want to do is break a clean shot with a wobble even in the area that you want to hit, right? And and then, you know, you're going to pack your shit up and you're going to go get the tennis ball. And then you're going to start it all over. You're going to grab your stopwatch. You're going to hit start. You're going to throw the ball. You're going to drop down, build the position, you know, get the wobble centered, and then try to take that shot as evenly as you possibly can, right? And then you're trying to be honest with yourself. You break the shot, and then you write down the time, and then you pick it up, pack your shit up, walk back up to the ball, and you try to do that like 10 times. Because to me, that's saying, okay, you're, you're cruising along, and all of a sudden, here's this thing that I need to shoot at. All right, cool. You set up your position. You understand the position stability. You understand what you may or may not need to make a good position. You're like, oh shit, you know, what I needed to make this position better is I got to get my pack in front of me too, because now I got this, then I can have rear support. And in order to get my pack off, you know, I didn't take my pack off. So it cost me more time. And, and you start to, you start to develop um, an understanding of where equipment needs to be when you're carrying it, where you need to put it, how, when you take it off. I think it's really important to understand exactly where you're going to put your stuff. I call it your workspace. I I put, you know, because I, if I'm shooting right-handed, I, I've been trying to shoot left-handed also, but if I'm shooting right-handed, my workspace is front and left because my left hand is more free to grab stuff. If I'm shooting left-handed, my right hand is more free. So I put things up in my workspace. What goes in my workspace is the stuff that I may or may not need, but I don't ever want to have to move to get things that I might need. I want to, I want to be able to get things without moving. And, 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 and that only comes from that repeated exercise. And it, and it might sound like a lot and it might sound stupid and crazy, but I, but I could tell you that doing things like that with that mindset and creating it for the person for their goals has allowed the people that I coach and train to accomplish their goals, right? There's a lot of trophies. There's a lot of animals. There's a lot of, um, you know, SWAT sniper and, and agency 
related shooters that feel more confident, comfortable, and have the numbers to support it from doing things like that. And that's not, that's everything up to the marksmanship part, but it's very hard to separate that stuff from your ability to be successful, I think. And then, and then you layer in the paperwork uh, and the live fire. But, but if you, if the only thing that you do is paperwork and live fire, your chances of success are probably still being held back by all of the routine stuff that in the moment won't be performed the way that it should. So that's what I consider dry fire. I don't consider dry fire just putting a pasty on the wall and running my bullet a bunch. I I consider dry fire starting from how are you going to start? You know, if it's a PRS shooter, it's your rifle in one hand, your bag in the other hand, you know, if it's a hunter, um, you know, it's whatever your patrol or your hunt stock setup is, but it, but it, you start, you start from there every time. And we break down what are the things you need to think about? You know, what you need to think about is different than what I need to think about. So we start breaking that down into what do you need to think about to make sure that you make a good shot and you have all the information that you need to make a good shot. And, and um, that's, that's where dry fire to me is, is vital. And then you marry that into the live fire on paper results. And, and we can say, you know, pretty effectively, here's your performance zone. And, I, th- I think that's cool, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's honestly a, a very helpful, practical takeaway from this whole thing is that type of, call it drill, that type of exercise and doing that. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a great, great suggestion. I mean, and I, and I just made that drill up because I, I was just, you know, when you asked, I was, I'm walking back and forth in my basement. There's a tennis ball on the ground. I was like, you know what? Like, um, <laughs> yeah. like that, but, but that's, you know, realistically that, you know, at a distance that you could throw a tennis ball, that's probably a vital size for an animal. And, and if you could do it on a tennis ball that you threw, then, you know, for hunting that, you know, uh, to me that, that, that still makes sense. Right. Cause it's, a, it's a couple inches you throw it, you know, it's, I don't, you know, you're probably not going to throw it a hundred yards, but even, even if you do, um, that's probably a realistic vital size thing. But now, now can you get it set up? And in using shooting sticks like there, if I'm, I haven't used trekking poles to do that, but I can't imagine not having a decent amount of wobble inherent in the system. And you want to be used to seeing the amount of wobble that that system is going to produce. It's not realistic to say you're going to have zero wobble from a system like that, but you can shoot very accurately with wobble in the system. If you understand the patterns, the level of expectation, and you don't anticipate the shot, you just center it up. If that wobbles within the vital size, within your target size, and you don't anticipate it, you know, that shot's probably going to stay in that wobble zone. If you try to anticipate it, that's where the, that's where the um, misses start coming in, right? jerk it when it's on center like that's not that's not a good practice to be in and you need to train your nervous system that's not what you're looking for right you're looking for even wobble even in the target 
slowly start your your shot process don't anticipate it just let it stay there it's wobbling but it's even and then bang the shot goes off that that's way better than there at center boom and then that's where you start to see those groups and you could you could test that right if you tell somebody okay let's build it let's you know let's shoot paper at 100 you grab a craft target shoot one anticipating the recoil or the wobble and then shoot the other one just breaking the shot cleanly with the wobble centered on the point of aim and you could prove to yourself which one works better do you have time for one more question oh yeah one i don't know if you can one i don't know if you have practical experience with this or like from what perspective you maybe have data on this or have talked with hunters about this from the craft drill etc I'm, I'll cut to the chase. I'm curious about how few hunters really think about the shootability of their system. And in, in two particular ways, one is cartridge choice and the other is the weight of the rifle and how inverse those are for many hunters. And then particular in contrast to like competition shooters, right? Like you got you have competition like PRS guys running extremely heavy rifles, adding weight to their rifles and then getting smaller and smaller cartridges, being able to, you know, shoot with little to no recoil, minimize the things like body position, follow through, et cetera. I'm not saying that they don't disregard it, but you obviously get in like free real recoil situations. Like sort of that is one extreme. And then the other extreme would be, Hunters, particularly hunters who do backpack hunting like myself, who care about weight like myself, who want a lightweight rifle like myself. And then some of those, you know, red-blooded American hunters who think everything also needs to be a super magnum. And so you get these guys who are like, oh, I'm going to build a six and a half pound, like 300 PRC. And my question is like, how well are you going to be able to execute and shoot that rifle especially once we get into things like position, which we've clearly discussed a lot today. So again, I'm not looking for like an answer or to say, here's the sweet spot or whatever, but I would love your, like your thoughts on that, maybe finding balance in that. And then if you did have any data conversations, et cetera, that would kind of help further that point. And I'm when I say further the point, I'm not trying to like say reinforce my argument. I'm just like throwing this out there as a topic for people to think about more because in particular in the backcountry backpack hunting world I, I, it's easy to chase the sexiness of a really lightweight system and maybe underestimate like is that really what i want or need from a shootability perspective well well first of all you know i'm, I'm gonna have to say that i don't know um but but i have i have some thoughts and, and i have some answers but the, the truth is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to access more hunters for data. But my hunch is most of the hunters that I talk to are hunters that also compete. And so they do things like NRL hunter and the light category is anything under 12 pounds. And then there's a 12 to 16 pound rifle category that they call the heavy hunting rifle. And my hunch is that the hunters that I know, because they're also competitors, um, are using heavier rifles than, and what kind of just the average, you know, or, or more typical hunter is using. Um, and so I, 
I want to be careful to say that most of the data that I have are, it's probably from rifles heavier than people are using. Like I've never shot a six pound 300 PRC. I've never shot a six pound hunting rifle ever. So um, I have a Remington 700 308 with a scope on it and a bipod and stuff like that. I think I'm around 10 pounds. That's my lightest rifle is 10 pounds and my hunting rifle is 11. Um, and I have a six, five PRC I'm building, um, some heavier, heavier, uh, calibers of some bigger ones. But the truth is I, I don't, I don't know. Now some people from the, um, Daniel Boone foundation came out for an assessment and they were shooting, uh, some of the big magnums. So I have seen hunters with light rifles, you know, they were, they were probably 10 pound rifles shoot some of this and see some of that data. But again, they're, they're people that care about their shooting and do it a lot. So they were very effective, capable shooters um, to begin with. Yeah. Um, when I, when I shoot a, a lot of times I shoot with an 11 pound rifle. I just personally, I like that because it exposes a lot of things in my shooting. And so m- most of the training that I, you know, most of the shooting and measuring I do is with an 11 pound rifle. My heaviest rifle is 17 pounds. Um, PRS shooters. I think the average weight right now that I'm hearing about is around 23 pounds, 22, 23 pounds. And, and I don't have a rifle that weighs that much. So I can't really speak to that either, but I do see their data when they come to the assessment. So I could speak for the data. I can't speak for, you know, my personal testing with that stuff, but, um, yes, the, it's an interesting conversation. Um, and I think it has two parts. One is the shooter and the other one is the amount of energy you could deliver effectively. And I, to me, you know, and I, I might be, incorrect but the way that i currently think about it with regards to hunting is is twofold a well-placed shot you don't need as big of a uh, amount of energy transfer right so Mm -hmm. if you hit it in the vitals you're going to have a certain effect and i think that um you know that to me, that that's one rule of thumb. Is if you make a well placed shot, um, you're going to be more effective than not making a, a, play, a shot that was not well placed. Um, and so you can make up for some of that by shooting. You know, if you shoot a fifty cal, you, you, you know, almost doesn't matter where you hit it, right? Um, but that brings up the ethical discussion and and how much hamburger you want versus steak. Um, I'm just kind of joking there, Um, but, but, but so the lighter, the lighter, the rifle, the more important your fundamentals become. Right. But also, you know, you get some added benefit of, of the amount of, of energy that you exert on whatever your hunt is. And some people, you know, they might shoot out of their truck. So that doesn't matter. Some people might carry it over mountains for a couple of days where it probably will matter. The lighter, the rifle, the more important recoil management becomes and, and, and not in maintaining your sight picture, but the effects that you have on the rifle system. And you can't just free recoil a, a, a light rifle. Um, so 
you need to understand your relationship to that rifle. So I'd say if, if somebody's going to shoot a, a light rest, six pound, 300 wind mag, I would, I would invest in some ammo and getting good data on how you shoot it from various positions and the effects that you have, because um, it could be different than you expect. Now, when it comes to the heavier, lighter calibers, you know, it again is, is it an effective amount of transfer where you shoot it? Um, and, and that kind of comes down to, you know, where, where are you shooting it to get the effects that you want to have happen? Right. Um, you know, I, I feel like my six, five PRC shoots the same as my six, five Creedmoor shoots, you know, I mean, I, I can, I can feel that it recoils more than a two, two, three, but I, I, I can, I can shoot my six, five PRC as well as any, any rifle. Um, and I shoot my six, five Creedmoor, you know, as, as good as I shoot a six BR. And, um, so that I think, you know, but, but the, obviously if, if you're going to Alaska and you're going to hunt a, a moose or a, or a grizzly bear, you know, you're, you're going to need a bigger caliber, right? Because the amount of energy, because of the tissue, um, but the limits, you know, I don't really like the lower end limits and I don't really like the upper end limits, but I don't think we need to be crazy, but I do think that it requires somebody sit down and say, what are my capabilities mm -hmm. and what hedges my bets towards those capabilities? So if you're shooting a seven rem mag and you know what, what it turns out that, um, yeah, I don't know if you guys think in terms of mile per hour, but if, if let's say somebody's shooting a seven rem mag, and it's a 10 mile an hour gun, which means that at a, at a, at, at, um, at a thousand yards, one mile an hour is, is basically going to move it a, a 10th, um, you know, or so at a, at a it, um, you know, or, or at a thousand yards, it's going to move the, the bullet one mil, um, which is like three inches or something like that. So the, the wind effect is much less on a seven rem mag than it is a two, two, three, right. Or a three Oh eight, which is like a four mile an hour gun. Right. So you've got, you've got twice more than twice the wind forgiveness with the seven rem seven Magnum than you do a three Oh eight at, mm -hmm. at, at a thousand yards. Right. So, but, but that's going to amplify even more, you know, as, as you come in. So if, if you really suck at reading wind, if, if I say, man, for some reason, you just don't understand how wind works. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't go shooting, but I would suggest you shoot a seven Magnum over a 308 because you could be wrong with your wind and it's not going to push your bullet out of the way as much in ethical hunting distances. So let's say you're going to take a 400 yard shot. The wind's going to move your bullet probably a third of what it would move a 308 in 400 yards. So if there's a 10 or 12 mile an hour wind, you almost don't even have to hold wind with a seven rem mag at 300 yards or 400 yards. Whereas with a 308, you, you actually will have to hold wind. Right now I'm not, I'm not sitting down with a calculator. I'm just kind of thinking yeah, out no, loud. No. Yep. 
So if you're like, well, I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to pay $250,000 to go on this crazy, you know, pink horned, you know, pygmy buffalo from the Arctic. And it's got a kill zone of eight inches. And it can smell you if you get within 150 yards. So I have to take this shot, you know, at, at two to 300 yards. Should I take a 308 or a seven rem mag? And I say, all right, well, how's your wind reading? And you're like, well, it's, you know, it's plus or minus five miles an hour. I'll be like, all right, let's, you, know, you need to train with a seven rem mag because once you get your fundamentals down, you won't have to worry as much about the wind. I think shootability, they probably shoot them the same in terms of your fundamentals and the recoil uh, effects. Now, that doesn't mean the recoil is exactly the same, but your group size will probably be similar with a 308 and a 7, you know, especially if you put a brake on it or something or a suppressor. But what you gain with wind forgiveness could make a difference between, you know, hitting, hitting the shot that you want to make. Um, so, you know, I, I would encourage people to, to, to test it out. Now, if you don't have a rifle yet and you're kind of contemplating between a six pound rifle and a 10 pound rifle, yeah, four pounds is a lot that four pounds, you know, it might cost you an extra three or $4,000. The 10 pound rifle may shoot better than this, the six pound rifle. And there's a lot of ways to make up four pounds that you know you could change your boots you could change um you could lose four pounds of body weight you could uh you know <laughs> there if, if you exercise and lose four pounds like you probably won't notice the difference uh you know in terms of the effort that it took to lose four pounds which which will immediately save you three thousand bucks the <laughs> amount of effort the the amount of energy that you um consume and put out on a hike uh, with um, by reducing the weight of your footwear doubles the amount of weight that you're carrying on your back. So you could literally, if you take a pound out of your boots, you're, you're taking multiple pounds off your back. And so you can head, hedge things in your favor, not just by saying, well, I want a six pound rifle. So shit, for a lot of people, you know, most of the time, that's a crazy decision. You know, unless you're shooting offhand, if you're shooting standing offhand, I want a light rifle so I could hold it up and not start waddling like crazy. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to support it or shoot prone or shoot it off sticks or shoot it off a bag, I want a little bit more weight. I don't want, I don't want a 22 pound rifle. I'm happy with an 11 pound rifle is eight pounds going to make a difference. I want the one that shoots better to be totally honest. And when it comes to those ounces and pounds, the first thing I think of is, you know, can I lose that from body fat? You know, can I do a little bit of exercise so that I don't um, need to worry about my rifle system? Can I get lighter boots? Can I eat, you know, can I, or, you know, all of those decisions outside of shooting, I think are probably more important and healthier to think about than, you know, I got this super fancy six pound rifle because my bet is that a six pound rifle cannot shoot as good as a 10 pound rifle, you know, everything else, even the barrel has to be too thin. And so you're going to see weird, weird effects with that barrel. The stock is going to have to be made of materials that maybe aren't ideal for shooting. So you're starting to 
unoptimize the shooting platform when the whole goal is the impact itself. So I would say, you know, you start with the goal and the parameters of your goal. I, I need to make this shot. Okay. What can absolutely make this shot and base everything around that versus if the goal is just to own a super light rifle and show what you can do with it, that's a different conversation. Um, so don't, don't get trapped by media and marketing and, and the idea of like, you know, here's all this sexy equipment. Let's go see what you can do with it versus I have a goal that I want to accomplish and what do I need to accomplish that goal? And then you start checking off the parameters of, I have to be able to shoot eight inches, you know, and where, where do I start? Can I shoot eight inches at a hundred? Yes. You know, Oh, it's 400 yards. Well, that means I can shoot eight inches to 200 yards. Awesome. So you can do that. Now you have to be aware of, can I get within 200 yards? Because if you can, you don't need anything, right? You're perfectly effective. If you can't, you know, so now can you carry that rifle for a long way? You know, do you need a lighter rifle or can you get away with this one? And, and start making those checks and balances that way rather than I hear I need a super light rifle. And so I'm going to get that super light rifle, not understanding or not keeping in mind the end result that you're looking for, right? If, if, if the end result that I'm looking for is running a sub three hour marathon, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, being able to, you know, first of all, you know, what's my average pace need to be. I'm not thinking like, do I need spandex or running shorts or compression socks or, you know, super padded shoes or, you know, no support shoes or flat, you know, it's like, no, I'm thinking about the goal and then I'm framing the things that I can and can't do around how do I solve that problem first. And, and um, so, so the, now I'm just thinking kind of stream of conscious here, but, yeah. but I think it's, I think it's the same thing. So ultralight rifles. Yeah. Maybe it'll help you, but it probably won't. Right. And and I'm thinking ultralight between six pounds and then heavy being 12 pounds. Is that six pounds going to matter? It might, but, but I, I doubt it. Like, I bet there's things that we could change to make you more effective and make you realize that for 90, you know, right. Cause on a hunt, like how, so, so how many days was your hunt in Alaska? Uh, the mountain goat was like eight days. So, of out of those eight days, how many how many days were you carrying your rifle around? Um, that one was unique because we lost a couple days to weather, but call it five. So for five days, you kind of lugged your rifle around, and then how how much time was spent pulling a trigger? Two minutes. <laughs> so so the ability to make the shot is primary importance, right? The, but but for the most part, you were carrying it around. So six pounds versus ten pounds. So you're carrying around four extra pounds. Well, that could that could you know you could definitely add up and and say I feel different carrying four pounds over five days, right? But again, you're carrying all your fat, whether you like it or not. So you could either get a little bit stronger or lose that four pounds. And either way, you're still carrying 
four pounds. So if it's just apples to apples, that weight mm-hmm. could come from other things, right? You get a get an exo pack. They're light. They're effective, right? They're um, that, and you know, if, if so, if, if you're if you're carrying around like an elderly stock, freaking like ten pound backpack, like full well, fuck, you just save four pounds right there. Just grab an exo, right? Or if you're carrying like giant six pound hiking boots, well, holy shit, you could cut four pounds there too, and you'll probably feel better anyway like there's a lot of ways to cut those four pounds if, if it's just i'm carrying around mass but mm-hmm. that mass could make that three minutes that you spent all that money and time in order to do like that's the penultimate event here is that three minutes of shooting if if you sh- sacrifice shootability for carryability like you just you just wasted you know, you've wasted a lot of money and time, right? You, you need to know that when it, when, when push comes to shove, you can make that shot no matter what. Yeah. And, and that, that's what I would, that's what I would come to. And then in terms of the, like the, the, you know, do you need a, you know, what, what caliber, you know, that again, like, what do you, you, you need to have the mass and energy to take down what you're shooting at as quickly and efficiently as possible. And you need to be able to put it where you want to put it and you don't need to go more and you don't need, and you shouldn't go less. Um, but if you're going to hedge bets in favor of something, you know, consider your wind reading ability into that. And, and I think that there's a fine balance, you know, I think the seven millimeters make a lot of sense to me um, in a lot of regards, because it takes out some of the uncertainty that you can't control. Um, and that, that's the wind. And once, once your shooting gets good, that's everything, right? Is the wind uncertainty and, and then, uh, and wind uncertainty, you get that from more mass going faster, you know, or, or less mass going, you know, even more faster, but, but then with the less mass, you know, you need to have that energy transfer. So for hunting, you know, it makes sense that you would be shooting, you know, somewhat decent mass and going fucking balls fast <laughs> right to me you know but 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 i don't know and it, it depends you know if, if uh it depends what you're what you're what you're hunting um but you know i've heard arguments about like ammo weight and stuff like that so you're not carrying around hundreds of rounds you know it's not battle loadout you're carrying a couple rounds like you've got a couple bullets on you that, that is completely negligible right because you you can pee out the difference in the weight between well, I got a magazine with five rounds of this and five rounds of this, like, mm-hmm. forget it. you know, that, that's just the internet argue garbage, stuff like that, you know, uh, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, that, that is interesting. It's not in my wheelhouse to talk about like energy transfer, but I'm, I'm sure it's important, but, uh, but I also know that like, you know, for, I don't know, but I've heard that, you know, poachers love the 22, long rifle for poaching elk up here in Colorado. Well, shit, if you could poach an elk with a 22, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I would be curious to research like what the arguments, you know, how, how do you explain that? Well, they're shooting them in the head. All right. Or maybe we shouldn't go into like shot placement and stuff like that. But, but I mean, the point is like, you can be effective at solving problems, but you want to make sure that you can, effectively solve those problems 
and then and and put the bullets where you want to put them at a distance that you can do exactly what you expect and plan to do and you can do it probably with less than you think and the closer you get which to me is fun um that also eliminates wind uncertainty so i don't need a seven magnum because i know that i'm i'm going to be wind is not an effect on the hunting shots that i that i take I need to find a way to do this myself, but like scratch my own itch. I'm curious to be, you know, how, what is, so like two hunting rifles I have, for example, is a seven Psalms, so like a short action ultra mag, and then a six, five Creed more. Like I need to spend more time. And now I have a way to do this, but like take those same barreled actions, drop them in uh the same chassis right so like the ergonomics and things like that are are very familiar and like what does that alone do for my craft drill right um roughly the same weight in that example same platform same interface between the rifle and the shooter like in terms of the chassis and position and um, everything cheek weld etc like just the recoil difference what's there or you know, another scenario would be, okay, I do need to shoot a seven rim mag, but how much more effective would I be at a craft drill with a seven pound rifle compared to a 10 pound rifle, for example? It was just, it'd be really interesting, not only to scratch my own itch on that, but like if we did that with a larger sample size of hunters and begin to see manipulating either or both of those variables of cartridge choice and therefore the recoil and at the same time the total weight of the system which obviously influences recoil and handling in a way as well like it would just be fun to see what we could learn from that if we were able to kind of do that quote-unquote experiment in a semi-controlled way yeah that would be fascinating and and i've done it for myself i've done it with you know a lot of shooters in person um and, and so i could I would say my guess, my, if I had to like just make a hypothesis, it would be that um, rifle balance matters more than rifle weight for for most oh, of that stuff. You know, the the balance you want you want it supported over the balance point of the rifle. So if you start putting, you know, a heavy barreled action in a lighter and lighter chassis, it's going to become more and more front heavy. And I think that I think that in order for the test to show results that are I think for a shooter to shoot results that are more consistent, if they could, if you could find a way to make sure that those rifles are balanced similarly and supported over that balance point and shot over the balance, um, they will shoot better than unbalanced rifles. You know, super front heavy rifles, you're going to have problems with a with the supported position off the ground, and then super rear heavy rifles are going to have similar problems. Uh, from a supported position off of the ground more than the recoil effect, at least in, in my experience, you know, I, I, I was shooting with some special forces snipers and they brought out their 300 wind mags and, you know, we're shooting 300 wind mag and six BR 300 wind mag and two, two, three, 300 wind mag. And, 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 and ultimately the group sizes, you know, other than the size that the bullets were fatter, um, were consistent across platforms um, when they were balanced correctly. And, and so that, that would be my, 
my hypothesis would be that over a large sample size, if the balance was done correctly, a shooter will probably shoot them similarly. Now you might lose your sight picture and not know where the hell you hit, which which I think has other connotations. But but in terms of just placing an accurate shot, knowing what your capability, and you know, I think that's fundamental first, right? You want to know that you can hit it, because then you know, even if you lose your sight picture, you know, you, you know, you know, you hit it. Um, which is where you know spotters would come into the equation and have historically, but now shooters are becoming more and more capable that they can spot their own shots. And spotting your own shots requires effective recoil management, right? You have to manage the recoil so you don't lose your sight picture. That's that's a little bit different than shootability, but but I could say that that you know if I had to make a guess, I would gamble on the side of make sure the rifle is properly balanced, and then. Uh, that'll produce results a more consistently, but also get better results and less loss or less deviation from the point of aim. You know, people's groups improve really quickly. If you balance their rifles for them, just be, you know, because of wobble and natural point of aim and the effects of, of shooting. It doesn't take much movement of the buttstock to move where the bullet goes to. So if on the shot and in the recoil, that, you know, you create this teeter-totter and if the barrel's going to dip down, odds are most of the shots are going to end up low because it's front heavy. And, you know, if it's balanced on, you know, you know, in front of the magwell where most people, most people balance it, if it's super front heavy, you're going to start shooting low, uh, the less the stability or the less support from whatever you're supporting it on is. And then if it's rear heavy, they're going to start to go high. Um, you know, as, as you get that statistical group sample, it's going to probably go up. Um, and then you got to balance that out with the effects that it's having on your body, which could be, could balance it out, but more than likely, um, you'll see things starting to hedge in the direction of where the balance point is. Fascinating. I, we could talk for another hour now. Thanks, Chris. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we'll keep this one there. If I've, yeah, just encourage listeners, like if you have questions, if you want to do a follow-up, uh, it would be fun to do that. But um, man, thanks for sharing the time. And I know we kind of bounced all over, but that's honestly what I wanted to do is just get on a call, hit record and see what happens. So thanks for being up for it. Heck yeah, man. Anytime. Love it.